BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Check out the Dabble Co. podcast right here on the Offscript Network. You can find the link in our... Mm. Okay, this is going to be one of those days. Sorry, one second. And by the way, I don't think Mark has ever, I don't think I've ever heard Mark make a mistake in his read. I think he like bats a, a perfect thousand. I don't think he ever made a single mistake. I, I don't understand the reference to American Cricket JL, but thank you. I appreciate that. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. So before we get started today, we wanted to give a shout out to another show in the Offscript Network, The Heart of Healthcare. That's right. Host Hallie Teco explores social determinants in healthcare, things like our food system, housing, climate change, and more. Yeah, and she actually tackles a subject we were thinking about covering on the declining number of primary care doctors and the possible reasons behind that. Yeah, that's, I think, a very interesting topic. Uh, she also has a great episode on appreciating neurodiversity. It's a great conversation, super informative, and part of our Offscript Health Network. So check out The Heart of Healthcare with Hallie Teco. Look for the link in our show notes. So, JL, how are you, man? I'm doing well, man. You know, we got uh, Memorial Day coming up soon, so it feels like we're moving in into the summer. Well, last week, I booked uh, we, my wife and I, we booked a vacation rental for uh, at the for the end of the summer. So we're excited about that. We have that plan set up. So um, I'm excited. It feels like we're moving into a a new phase of the year. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that sounds like you're gonna have a great summer. I will say though, you're lucky you're not my patient because rather than inquiring about your fun travel plans, I might be asking some very intrusive questions <laughs> of you. Have you gone to the bathroom today? Was there any <laughs> blood? What was the caliber of your stool? <laughs> and caliber, and the reason, you, mean, you mean the, yeah. the, the, the width, the length? Yes. What are we talking yeah. about here? <laughs> oh, I, want, I want all the dimensions. I am, uh, I am to, to an almost pathological degree, obsessed with this stuff because I say in the show open every time, I treat cancers of the gut. And that includes mm -hmm. the colon, and the rectum. So today we are going to venture, my friend, into the bathroom, into a topic that some people consider taboo, colonoscopy. I'm ready. All right. I, thank you. I was hoping you would come on this journey with me. I, <laughs> I believe you may have a story to tell. But before we get there, our question of the day is why is colonoscopy important? And I will start by saying, although I do this every day, I still do understand why talking about this procedure in particular makes people uncomfortable? 
Yeah. And, and and I think part of it is I think that there is a lack of understanding or a vague understanding. I think people know that there's some kind of tube that's going into a certain hole and they really don't know much more than that. They really don't understand like what's actually happening. They don't really understand the benefits. Um, I will say that, you know, Katie Couric uh, had an experience with the death of her husband, Jay Monahan, back in 98. Yeah. And uh, she actually did an on-air colonoscopy that I think really educated a lot of people and inspired people to think about getting a colonoscopy. But I still think, as you said, it's got a certain taboodness to it. You're so right about Katie Couric. I mean, that was literally a watershed moment for public health in this country, in my opinion, because she showed visually and as discreetly as network television would allow um, that this is actually a camera. It's a flexible camera with instruments attached to it that, yes, you're right, is inserted through the anus, into the rectum, through the colon, all the way around to where it attaches to the small intestine. And yes, I know I'm already using some words that are either <laughs> going to make you uncomfortable or make you laugh, depending on your demeanor. And, and look, I really get it because I am a British man, okay? My livelihood now depends on asking these very, very private questions about other people's bowel movements. And as I was being raised and taught, you know, near Victorian level etiquette by my very stern grandmother. I did not think this is where <laughs> my life was going to end up. Having said that, now that I've been a parent myself, one of the first books I remember reading with my kids, and maybe you've seen this, I think it's kind of a classic, is Everyone Poops. You know this one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so good. I think it is actually originally written by a Japanese author, but the whole point is the universality of poop. It doesn't matter what language you're communicating in. Uh, it doesn't even matter what animal you are. The book goes a long way with some very delightful visuals <laughs> to showing this is essentially part and parcel of being an animal on this planet. So let me tell you how I think about it, all right? So everybody, every person has what we call the hind gut. So when we are growing as embryos, our gut is actually in three separate segments, the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut in that mm -hmm. order from top to bottom, uh, literally and figuratively. And the hindgut is the part of the body where your stool is stored and then expelled when you defecate. Now, one way of really simplifying this model comes from one of my surgical friends. He calls himself a plumber, he, when I, you know, he does these incredible 11-hour procedures in the OR. But when you ask him at its root, what are you doing in there? He says, I'm a plumber. And I say that, and I think he's being quite self-effacing and, and no disrespect to any plumbers listening. I think what you do is very important and complicated too. But what I'm getting at is the GI tract for all its complexity is all about tubes. It's one continuous pipe going from your esophagus to your stomach, to your small intestine, to your large intestine, which is your colon, to your rectum. I don't know if I've told you this, Mark. I was a uh, middle school teacher for a short period of time. I taught uh, seventh graders and ninth graders, and uh, I taught a biology course. We had a little bit of human anatomy, and that's exactly how I explained the human gut to people, was that it was a series of tubes that had some special attachments connecting yeah. into the tube system. But essentially, you know, if you drop something in your mouth, it's going to come out the other end at some point. That's right. And if you swallow gum, I'll just go ahead and debunk this myth right now. It does not stay in your stomach for six years. I heard that in middle <laughs> school, not from not from a good teacher like you, but from some of my less reliable fellow students. So here's mm -hmm. the thing. 
that the inner lining of this tube constantly has things passing through it and potentially irritating that lining. So again, at the top, it's food. And then again, that food, as it goes through the entire passage, becomes stool. And, and one theory is that the inner lining of that tube becomes cancerous, partly because of this ongoing turnover mm -hmm. of the cells. They constantly have to be replaced. They slough off as things pass. Mm -hmm. And when cells in the body divide, if they divide the wrong way, uh, that can set you up for a cancer, if not immediately, then eventually. And I thought maybe you and I can kind of get there through the pre-cancer route and talk about polyps. Sure. And uh, a polyp is another one of those medical words, but it's just an abnormal growth of some kind of tissue. And you can get polyps anywhere. There are nasal polyps, there are uterine polyps, and there's obviously polyps in your colon. And uh, sometimes they can be cancerous, sometimes not. They can go from being not cancerous to cancerous, and uh, they have a life of their own. Yeah, it's interesting. Even when we talk about the colon, I it will refrain from nerding out and telling you all the different types of colon polyps. But basically, the lifespan of a polyp from, from when it first develops to when it's actually a problem for the patient, that usually takes years. Now, as a polyp grows, it disrupts what's supposed to be that smooth inner lining of, of the bowel. And that's where the blood can come from. And then we can look for that. So we'll get to that later when we talk about stool testing. But in truth, from the moment a polyp appears to when it actually degenerates into cancer, that process can take a decade. Sometimes it can take 14 or 15 years. So as we'll get to in a second, it's are you capturing that growth in time to save the patient from developing cancer or from needing a cancer surgery? And Mark, if I'm right, and if I remember correctly, this is really, colon is really the only kind of cancer in the body where you can truly see a precancer. You can see something that you know that if you don't do anything about it will eventually become a cancer. And because you know that there is this linear relationship between this polyp then becoming a cancer, you can actually do something about it. You can actually treat it. I mean, are there any other examples other than that? Well, you know, in women's health, I was thinking, you know, oh, that's right, that's right. Looking for cervical cancer, right? So some, sometimes when they're, they're really inspecting the cervix, um, the gynecologist, for instance, might be able to remove some premalignant growth from the cervix. But that's really the only other example I could think of, JL. Right. Okay. And and again, you know, for the listeners, the way I would think about it is, if you're looking down the tube, so you've got it's almost like you've got like a telescope and you've got your eye at one one end. When a polyp is growing. Rather than you seeing a perfect cylinder inside, now you see it's the surface is bumpy and something is mm -hmm. growing into the interior. But here's the good news. A gastroenterologist using a camera can see that polyp, but with instruments that they introduce through the colonoscope, they can also remove the polyp. So this is my first big takeaway in this topic. Colonoscopy isn't just screening. It's also for the reasons you just explained, arguably prevention, because we've done a fantastic job in women's health of normalizing cancer screening. If a woman goes and has a mammogram, that may identify a problem, but it's not fixing the problem. That woman then needs further procedures if that problem is actually going to be repaired or removed. Uh, but it's different when it comes to the colon. And the funny thing is with these polyps, and I know this from my own experience, I mean, some of these suckers are really small, like a millimeter, two millimeters, yes. one centimeter is a giant polyp, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, we love the metric system. 
you know, to make that imperial, I mean, we might be talking about a tenth of an inch. It's extremely rare that I see patients whose polyps are an inch in size. So again, these are very small things. You, you do want them removed though, because a polyp that is removed is a polyp whose growth is interrupted. Because again, left to their own devices, some of these polyps over enough time don't just grow inward, they grow outward into the wall of the bowel. So now we're thinking about the outside of the tube, and this is beyond what a colonoscopy can get to. So really it's important you catch it before it gets to that point. Absolutely, makes sense. All right, so imagine what this sort of looks like on the inside. So the, the inner lining of the tube of the cylinder is smooth, and it almost looks like the inside of your cheek, but just beyond that, is muscle. And it's actually a good thing that muscle's there because it is involuntary muscle that does your digestion for you. So for instance, yeah, if you swallow something, you don't have to think about moving the food down your throat and into your stomach purposefully. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. That, that saves us a lot of time and uh, energy. But here's the problem is that the cancer can grow into that muscular layer and, and beyond it, all the way through the wall, to the other side, which is well beyond what the gastroenterologist can see. So again, colonoscopy is a two-for-one special because if they get in there early enough, you can, in theory, prevent most of these growths. And, and to really give the problem some scale, the lifetime risk, not of developing colon polyps, but of developing colon cancer is close to one in 25. There are over wow. 100,000 new cases of colon cancer in the U.S. each year. There are over 50,000 deaths. And unlike women's health screens, this is not a gendered issue because everybody has a colon. Sure. All right. And then there's some people that you don't want to meet in this process. So the gastroenterologist is super, super helpful. But if they can't remove a polyp simply, now, unfortunately, you're invoking at least one more, if not two more, specialists. The first person you're probably going to meet is a surgeon, because if the gastroenterologist can't remove the problem, a surgeon can, but that's obviously more invasive. They are literally sort of cutting out that segment of the pipe, if you will, and then putting you back together. And if the cancer gets to the lymph nodes that are beyond even the muscular layer, well, now you're on pace to meet a medical oncologist like me. And one of my sayings, which I also want to kind of drive home as a takeaway point, a medical oncologist, a chemo doctor, if you want to call me that, is the last person who should be seeing a patient with colon cancer because there are all these steps, all these opportunities that we have between the patient and their healthcare system to intervene sooner. And I think there's a real preventable tragedy when we don't. So I thought maybe today you and I could delve into what's the problem? Why aren't we doing more colonoscopies? And I think to get into that um, on a personal level, uh, I think we're going to do some TMI. I think you and I are going to talk about our scope experiences, if you're game. <laughs> I'm totally game. Happy to, happy to share. All right, man. Let's start a break, and then we'll talk about it when we come back. All right. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right. Well, welcome back. And JL, I believe you're going to give our listeners a real treat by telling them about your colonoscopy experience. I'm always happy to share with our with our loyal listeners. So um, <laughs> I had a colonoscopy earlier this year, and uh, it was actually a his and hers colonoscopy that I scheduled with my wife. And uh, it was not our version of date night. It was just uh, we happened to be sort of on the same schedule uh, for my wife. This was her first, and this was actually my second colonoscopy. Um, I'll be 52 this year. So I had a, a colonoscopy about six years ago, if I remember correctly. And we had it at a local sort of, a, I guess you call it an endoscopy suite, so not connected to a hospital, freestanding. And the procedure really is not that bad. And if you go to a place that, you know, does a lot of these, you know, the procedure, they they had a well-oiled machine there. They were doing yeah. probably, you know, a dozen, two dozen uh, per provider, or a dozen per provider per day. So it was, a, you know, a really, you know, streamlined process. And, uh, you know, I was sort of in and out pretty quickly. I think I was in that, that place for two hours at most. You know, in terms of the procedure itself, they give you some medication to help you fall asleep after, you know, they're, they're ready to go. Um, it's funny, uh, six years ago, the medication that they used uh, to put you under was Versed and fentanyl. Yep. Um, and that's the same fentanyl that's killing people in drug overdoses these days. So it's very interesting that, you know, I've had fentanyl uh, and that was six years ago. But nowadays they're using a, a product called Propofol. Uh, you may remember, Mark, Propofol is the medication that Michael Jackson's doctor was prescribing to him uh, to help him fall asleep. But Propofol is a great medicine. The anesthesiologist uh, told me to count down from 10 to one. I think I got to nine and I was completely out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's lights out. It's that it's this really kind of interesting, like milky liquid and you can watch yep. it go into your vein. And the moment you see it go in, you're like, it's lights out. It's like different from falling asleep. Like falling asleep, you feel yourself falling asleep, you know, and then at some point you you go totally out. With the propofol, it's like lights on, lights out. There's no euphoria. There's no fear or anything. It's just you're like you're talking to the anesthesiologist and then you're out. And then, you know, the procedure is about 30 minutes or so. And then what's great at the end of this procedure is they actually have pictures to show you mm -hmm. of what the, your inside looks like. And I think that that's an amazing, you know, part of this is you get to see what your anatomy looks like. Um, they get to show, you know, I had a couple of small little polyps that they had to nip off and it was great to see exactly what the inside of me looked like and to walk out of there knowing that I didn't have colon cancer. So that was a, a great feeling. My wife also had a good experience as well. And, you know, for the most part, the procedure itself is fine. But the thing we probably need to talk about is the prep. Ah, yes. <laughs> so the prep. So what I think people need to understand is that for the doctor to be able to take good pictures of your insides, you really have to wash out the whole thing, right? Obviously, stool is brown and colored, so that would probably obscure the camera. So you really need to completely flush out your insides. Now, part of that is fasting. So if I remember, Mark, what is it, like a 24-hour fast that you have to do? I, I, I've forgotten it already. Yeah, at the at the upper end, that's about right. Your, your, your point being that you don't want to be putting new food in there that's generating more stool as you're cleansing what was already inside. So you don't eat anything to, to, to make sure that the top of the tube doesn't have any food in it. And then they give you a special medication that helps you 
completely clear out the bottom of the tube. Uh, now, there is a couple different brands. I think I had Golightly was the brand that I had. Which is, by the way, the the most misleading name of any drug, right? You are not <laughs> going to go lightly. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Precisely. And, uh, and and that is such an insightful comment because what a misnamed product. Because you take the medicine. I I, I found the medicine to be pretty gross. And I, I really had to chug it to get it down because it was, it was you know, it, it tastes nasty. I think I tried to cut it with cranberry juice or something, but that just made it worse. And then once it was down, because it was the second time that I, w- I, I had the prep, I knew what was coming. But for yeah. somebody who may not have had it before... What I like to describe is this feeling all of a sudden that your gut, your tummy is rumbling. And then all of a sudden there is a sprint to the bathroom. Yep. And what starts coming out of you initially is sort of normal looking stool. You know, I've seen that before. And then afterwards, it's what I like to refer to as hot sideways diarrhea uh, with stuff <laughs> what a phrase stuff coming out of you so fast like you can't even believe how fast the diarrhea is coming out of you and what I always like to joke is this was the case for me and my wife you have like diarrhea on parts of the toilet you have no idea how it even got there because <laughs> normally you wouldn't see diarrhea there uh, but after the prep is done you're clean but uh, boy that's a, that's a, that's an experience let's say that so what I'm hearing from you most of all is his and hers colonoscopy, very romantic experience. Thank you for uh, sharing that uh, for any couples out there. And his and hers prep, that was the even, that's the sexy <laughs> yeah, part, yeah, exa- right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Put on the Barry White. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting you bring this up, Jail. And, and the reason I wanted to delve into it, and thank you, by the way, for being so candid. The prep is the main disincentive I hear all the time. If there was any other way we could do this, where you didn't have to clearly visualize the entire inner contents of the tube, believe me, we would do it another way. But unfortunately, there is not yet any good solution other than the prep. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is opportunity cost. How much time, because obviously this prep is going to keep you in the bathroom for a while, how much time do you think this all took, kind of from start to finish, from when you started the prep to when you felt back to normal after the colonoscopy? Good question. I mean, so there are a couple different ways that you can think about the opportunity cost. So there is the actual physical participation from the, you know, the beginning of the fast to when I was finally able to get online. And honestly, you know, let's say I started my fast at midnight or whatever time it was. And then I had my procedure at 9am. I was checking emails at like noon, you know? Wow. So, uh, Honestly, I, I it was a fast turnaround for me. Um, I think I was even checking emails when I was in the suite before they gave me the propofol. So, <laughs> so it was it wasn't that bad. As soon as I got uh, done with the procedure, um, I had it on the east side. My wife and I walked home, so it wasn't really a big deal at all. At like I'd say half an hour, fifteen minutes after the, I woke up, I felt totally fine. My legs were steady, and again, I was able to walk home. And again, I think sometimes uh, I, I don't want to talk up the prep because I don't want to scare people. But, you know, most people can get through the prep and to be able to walk out of that suite knowing that you're clean and you're good to go and they don't have to see you for another five years. I mean, there are very few other types of cancers that you have that kind of certainty. So it's definitely something I would recommend to people. Well, again, thank you for being so honest about the sort of the upsides and the obvious downside. I don't think either one of us want to downplay just how involved the prep is. And it's interesting, you live in one of the great American walking cities, your whole kind of story about walking home. 
One of the issues we have actually with getting people to and from colonoscopies is exactly what you just said, is that some of the sedating mm. medicine leaves people impaired behind the wheel. And we've actually had a problem mm. here where unless you have a friend or family member who can transport you, companies like Uber will often refuse to do it. Interesting. Uh, citing, wow. Citing health risks. Because we, we thought at one point, we thought, well, maybe we can partner with like one of these, you know, ride-sharing companies, the American Cancer Society, and we can pull this off. But that's that's the objection that they raised. Right. I also wanted to point out what you said about the, removing the polyps. So I tell my patients this analogy all the time. It's like mowing the lawn and getting rid of the bad weeds. And once those weeds are analyzed, you know how likely they are to come back and at what rate. And that really determines when you get your next scope. So for instance, the interval you have between your scopes sounds completely appropriate. Sometimes, depending on how many polyps there are or exactly how they look under the microscope, the gastroenterologist might tell you to come back sooner. But really, one scope determines the timing of the next scope. And we'll talk in a second about when you should start doing all this. But I, I do think that, you know, we're being pretty blunt about, about the prep and what that entails. To me, these are the, the two reasons people don't want to do it is the prep and the lost time and the difficulties with transportation. Yeah. And one other thing I forgot to mention that actually just comes to mind now is not only do does the doctor, your gastroenterologist have to have a completely clean bowel, but generally the bowel is sort of collapsed on itself, right? So it's hard to actually <laughs> oh, I see, see the yes. sides of the wall. So what they do is they insufflate the bowel. So that's a great uh, medical word. What they what it means is that they put some gas into your colon. I, they probably use nitrogen. I don't even know what they use, but it opens up your bowels. And then what happens is after you finish your procedure, you have all this gas in you and it has to come out some way. And uh, I always say, as a guy who went to an all guys high school, who was on a, <laughs> on a sports team with a bunch of other guys, it's a fart joke is, is, is always nearby. And boy, I have to tell you, I had some of the most glorious farts ever after having that procedure. <laughs> you, you had plenty of material. Uh, yes, for the locker room. <laughs> All right. So you've been more than gracious to share your side of it. Let me tell you my stories. So my first scope ever, just as you described, I got sedation with fentanyl and Versed. And mm -hmm. I woke up and I could see from the clock on the wall that not nearly enough time had passed. And I kind of looked up an alarm at the nurse there and I said, what happened? And she said, you became violent and attacked the doctor. Um, now, this was a real problem because as a physician myself, I work with this guy. So I, 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 I'll tell you what I felt like. Uh, I am not a violent person in my regular conscious life, but apparently you put me under and I become Jason Bourne. I become very violent and I become an amnesiac. So from then on, they have always done my procedures with propofol. And in fact, just like you said, this happened to me in at 2010, I think. So Michael Jackson's death was very, very recent. And the mm -hmm. anesthesiologist said to me, as I'm watching this stuff go into my vein, as I described earlier, okay, we're giving you the Michael Jackson drug now. And before I could object <laughs> and say, well, that's a horrible thing to say, I was out. I have never made it past seven counting back from 10. But my other point wow. to our audience is my experience is like yours. I have had zero problems bouncing back after propofol. How quickly it renders you unconscious is just, it's unbelievable unless you've had it yourself. Uh, but mm -hmm. I really had no hangover from it whatsoever. 
And, and, and it's funny, you mentioned the Versed too. Uh, you use the word amnestic. You know, sometimes the benzodiazepines and Versed is a, is a type of ber, uh, benzodiazepine can give you amnesia. So I yeah. remember that, uh, that procedure that I told you that I had in 2016, you know, my wife drove me back from Westport to New York. That's an hour more drive. I don't remember that drive at all, man. Oh, man, <laughs> that's, that's so weird. It, it is totally weird to lose like an hour of time. And again, that's another, I think one of the nice things about propofol, it's like you're, you wake up and you're ready to go. Exactly. It's like you've had a refreshing nap. Yes. <laughs> so JL, with what you've been through, I mean, do you think you can see now why people are, I don't know what the right word is, disincentivized to get colonoscopy? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the fear is a real thing and, you know, lack of understanding. You know, the fact that it can be very time consuming, I think is definitely a real issue. I think, you know, because I'm on the business side as well, I, I see there can be costs. So for instance, if you have a high deductible health plan, your gastroenterologist may charge $2,000 for that procedure. So it's not necessarily cheap if you don't have good insurance. So I think that's another one uh, that may be limiting why people don't get uh, this procedure more. I am so glad you brought up costs because there's one other specialist we need to mention who often gets forgotten, the pathologist. So yes. if the gastroenterologist removes even a polyp, someone is going to be looking at that under the microscope. And so now you have a diagnostic procedure occurring. So one thing I think people should know is I don't want any surprise billing. We've talked about that in prior episodes is to really understand to the best of their ability going in, what is going to happen, like fiscally speaking, if a polyp is removed and sent to a pathologist. I actually had one patient jail who agreed to the screening portion of the scope, but told his gastroenterologist not to remove any of the polyps because he didn't want to be billed for the pathology. And that That's is such crazy. A, isn't that nuts? <laughs> it, it's such a backwards view. It's one that you can argue uh, comes from extreme frugality, but it makes zero medical sense. So the other issue to deal with here is you are a black box. The, the gastroenterologist does not know what they are going to find and remove until they do the scope. It's the whole point. It's like Schrodinger's colon. And so <laughs> that means you can't necessarily predict um, what polyp or polyps are removed and sent to pathology. So it's really, really crucial not to be ambushed by the cost of the pathologist rendering their services. They do deserve to be reimbursed for that, but people should be aware going in that that's a possibility. And just a, again, a, another one of those stories that just goes to show you how crazy our healthcare system is. You should get a procedure, everything should be included in it. And, you know, again, as a patient, you should never be in a position where you're like, you know, I'll take part A of this life-saving procedure, but I won't take part B because it may cost, cost too much. That's crazy. Right. It's, it, yeah, right. R really, you can only imagine that happening in our system, right? So yeah. really quickly, because I know it's going to be people's question, what are the alternatives to a full colonoscopy? Well, the first thing is there is a version of the camera that doesn't go in as far. That's called flexible sigmoidoscopy. It looks at the very lower portion of the colon, basically the rectum and, and the first portion of the large intestine. But the other thing that comes to mind is the true non-invasive approach of fecal testing. Now, this is not entirely an escape mechanism from colonoscopy. So just like you said, it does not make sense to do one without the other. If you do one of these stool tests and it's positive, meaning it tells you there's a problem, it is crazy in my mind not then to follow up with the colonoscopy that should fix that problem. Basically, you now have the knowledge 
the awareness that something's wrong, but you are not fixing it. It's an incomplete screen until you do the scope. Yes. And the, those fecal tests, that's what I like to call the poop in the box. Uh, there's a company that advertises quite a bit on, uh, on TV. And uh, my mother actually just went through these, uh, you know, non-invasive screenings. And, uh, you know, and we were reading the instructions. And again, I was reading the instructions. I was like, they're telling you to poop in a box and then put that box in another <laughs> box and then send a box of poop in the, in the post office. <laughs> Yeah, it makes you think about all the things that are flying around in the mail, right? So actually, I, when I was in fellowship at Mayo Clinic, and this was far from my work, they were they were developing these very sophisticated stool tests that have gone on to become products like Cologuard, which I think is mm-hmm. what you're referring to. You know, it used sure. to be, JL, and you and I, you know, trained through this, maybe even practiced through this. The test was almost exclusively looking for blood. Um, yep. So two issues there. Number one, if the doctor themselves was doing a digital rectal exam, putting on a, a glove, lubricating a finger and inserting that to get the stool specimen, that's actually traumatic. That can mm-hmm. introduce even on a microscopic level blood. So that can be a false positive test. But there are also benign causes for blood in the stool, the most obvious one being hemorrhoids. So just a blood-based test doesn't really get you there. Some of these more sophisticated tests, which are called fecal immunohistic chemistry, they get you closer to really drilling down to cancer and advanced worrisome polyps. But but here's the thing. Again, if those tests are positive, you really need a colonoscopy. And what I have seen in my practice in the last two years, which is very worrisome to me, is because the rates of colonoscopy have dropped during the pandemic, The rates of people coming to me, the chemo guy, with higher stages of colon cancer have gone up by about 15, 1.5%. So what I think that speaks to is we have missed a window of opportunity mid-COVID to catch people earlier. And speaking of earlier, uh, and maybe we can sort of start to close with this, there's this key question of when should you actually start by age screening someone for colon cancer? And there's a phrase, which I like a lot. It's very catchy. The phrase is 45 is the new 50. And I hope what so. has happened? Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what, what's happened here is for years, the American Cancer Society and now our government, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, has been looking at lowering the age at which you should be screened. Basically get your first scope, just like you. And and the number has been set at 45. This number has been endlessly debated. And as you can imagine, age is a continuous variable. So it's obviously it's just an ongoing spectrum. You can argue, oh, it should be 44, it should be 43. The fact that it is at 45 does two things. It does help us catch some people's polyps earlier before they become cancer. And also I have to tell you, it has prompted the 50-year-olds to say, oh my gosh, not only do I, I need my screening, I might be overdue. And we didn't do that as some sort of like coercion, but it has had that effect also. I have to tell you though, the screening is not perfect in the sense that we're still not saving everybody. And the person that really comes to mind here, I think in the public mind, is Chadwick Boseman. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, much respect to Chadwick Boseman, the Black Panther himself, Wakanda forever. The poor guy was diagnosed with a colon cancer at 40, which is really young. And he died at 43. And he had such a he had such a legacy. You know, uh, that movie, Black Panther, was so important to so many people, uh, a huge success at the box office uh, and part of a, you know, a much broader Marvel uh, cinematic universe. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that we lost him. And if he could have gotten screened earlier, um, you know, as we were saying before, we could have uh, maybe found what he had uh, was just Apollo and could have treated him and he could have uh, gone on to have a long career. And it's a shame that uh, we lost him. I was literally watching that movie with my son when my friends started like calling me and saying, did you know that Chadwick Boseman just died of colon cancer? It was like the eeriest feeling because he had kept it quiet. So to his enormous credit, and he was in spectacular physical shape when you consider, especially in hindsight, what he was going through. Yeah, his cancer probably emerged right around 40. And so you know, even screening at 45 might not have saved him, but diagnostic procedures earlier could have. And there is one theory, JL, just really briefly, I have to mention as to why this is happening. Why are we seeing earlier and earlier onset colon cancer? Well, there's two things. Number one, there are differences by ethnicity. And actually Chadwick, mm-hmm. as an African-American, is an example that African-Americans are prone to earlier onset colon cancer. We've actually known that for a while. So even before everyone's age of first screening dropped from 50 to 45, the American College of Gastroenterologists already recommended that African-Americans get their first screening at 45. So Chadwick demonstrates that. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. The second thing is antibiotics. So the part of the gut that we really don't understand well are the billions of bacteria in there and how they Mm -hmm. interact with us and how they might actually set us up for these malignancies. So again, like I've mentioned several times now, I grew up in the UK. In the National Health Service, they did something really smart. They looked at these young onset cases of colon and rectal cancer. And because they have a universal medical record lifelong, they went backwards And they looked at what was happening during childhood and adolescence in those patients. And there did seem to be a higher rate of certain antibiotic prescriptions. And the theory is that changed the gut, changed what we call the flora, the microbiome, the bacteria in there. Mm -hmm. And in some of those people, the bad actor bacteria flourished and then might have led to the cancer. So it's not proof, uh, but it's a very compelling theory, I think. That's very interesting, and uh, I, you know, I, I had not heard of that uh, antibiotic connection to uh, cancer. So, thank you for sharing. Yeah, man. And then the last part, which you've heard me also talk about before, quite passionately and personally, is you got to know your family history. So, this whole business of screening at forty-five only applies if you don't have your own relative who has experienced colon cancer at an early age. So, what we generally do as a rule of thumb is ask you in your family. Who is the youngest person who has experienced colon cancer? What age did they develop that? And we subtract at least 10, sometimes 15 years from that number. And then that's when you should be screened. So you can personalize starting to screen based on your family. Mark, in terms of that relative, is that a first degree relative, like a brother, sister, mother, or father? Like uh, how far, uh, how close to the the patient? It's a much, much more powerful risk factor if it's a first degree relative. Okay, got it. Understood. All right. So before we go, I have to tell you about this mean tweet I saw this week. This is unbelievable. And actually, and we were just talking about, you know, true ethnic variations in colon cancer risk. This is to me an egregious assumption 
about differences in ethnicity in physician performance. And unbelievably, this came from a former dean of curriculum at Penn. So real quickly, there was a study looking at basically uh, resident physician performance, how they were rated. And the conclusions of the study were actually that there may be significant disadvantages incurred by these resident physicians who were minorities. There was concern about bias in faculty assessment. There was concern about a non-inclusive learning environment, uh, really sort of inequities related to structural racism. And this guy, his conclusion was, could it be they were just less good at being residents? And I saw this and I could not believe that this guy was was putting this out on this public forum. Your thoughts? Uh, look, I, you know, I've, I've heard of this Stanley Gofarb guy. I mean, this guy is a clown in my view. But, you know, I, I can definitely say that, you know, at Columbia was very similar to Penn. There is not a large number of minority physicians, even though we served a, a large minority community. I, I, I always try to be upbeat and positive, man. But guys like this, you, you know, they're out there and uh, they're your mentors. They're, they're, they, they might be the person who is making a decision as to, you know, do you get a job? Do you get promoted? And, you know, to be very honest, Mark, uh, you know, I think uh, guys like this are part of why I do what I do is, you know, I, I don't want to be dependent on guys like this uh, yeah. to promote my career. But I think, you know, if, uh, this guy has gotten quite a bit of um, of, uh, of criticism for his views. Um, and I think a lot of people have pointed to the holes in his logic and his thinking. Yeah. And I can definitely tell you in my time working in an academic environment, you know, the, the minority physicians that I saw were just amazing and very good at what they did as good. You couldn't tell the difference. And, uh, you know, I think guys like Stanley Gofarb are, are fossils, you know, guys who represent a, a different time before it was a more inclusive environment. And these guys are sort of hanging on and, you know, hopefully in the future, this guy will be in Boca Raton and, you know, talking off the ear of somebody down there and letting the real doctors do the real work uh, up here. Amen, my friend. Amen. <laughs> all right. Well, that is our show for today, everybody. Thank you for sticking with us for all the colonoscopy content. And if you've been putting it off, I hope we've inspired you to go out, make that appointment, get it done. Fantastic. And thank you for listening. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And remember, offscript is with, with no T. Or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66. That's 855-283-4666. You can find us on social media. I'm active on LinkedIn and my Twitter handle is at Jean-Luc Neptune. And mine is at Mark Lewis MD. Please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show does not provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. Take care, everybody, and please join us next time for Is It Serious? <laughs> That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. 
Our researcher is Emma Gomez, and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.